0: Well, friends, please turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13, and while you're turning there, uh, you can also go back to that passage in Hosea, which Ken read to us earlier in the service, because we're going to look at Hosea Hosea 6. Covenant kids, uh, this is a chalice. It's a big cup. Pastor Eric is going to reference this during communion. But uh, as your parents permit, would you draw a picture of this cup or a cup like it and, and draw it in such a way that that cup, it's not empty, it's not full, it's overflowing. Would you draw a picture of a cup that's overflowing? And as you're drawing that picture, I want you to think about what causes a cup to overflow. Not tripping and spilling it, but truly overflowing. This morning, we're going to look at a passage in which a life has been transformed from empty to overflowing. And we're going to look at that in Matthew's gospel. We're going to see a life transformed by an encounter with the Lord. Let's hear God's word for us today from Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word, and as we have just read, you transform lives. You take us empty vessels, and you call us to follow you. You transform us to be fountains of living water. You are that source of water. Would you help us to understand more of who you are and your desire for mercy, not only in our lives but throughout your world, Lord, we ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you had one opportunity to share one story with not only your children but your grandchildren or or perhaps the generations to come, what story would you tell? There are stories of generations all around us. If you go to a park or a city building or, or a city square, you'll find a plaque or a portrait of someone or, or a, a statue. And usually by the, the shape of that statue or the picture that's presented or the words on the plaque, there is a story that's being shared about who that person was and the story that they left for a coming generation. This is a unique passage for us because the Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, and yet this is his sole story. This is the only story that Matthew tells us about who he is. This is the one story, the unexpected story, we might even say, of what he wants to remember, wants us to remember, wants generations to come to remember about who he is, who he was. And who he now is. And in the midst of that story is the encounter with the Lord. Now it's important for us to understand who Matthew was. Matthew wants us to know that he was a tax collector. He was a sinner. That's the defining way he he, he describes himself. Sitting at a tax booth. A collection booth. But we have to understand in the context that a tax collector is not like a tax collector in our day. I know some of you have some views on the IRS. I know some of you have some very strong views on the IRS. But that's not the kind of tax collector that Matthew was. You see, Matthew was a tax collector for an invading country, Matthew was the IRS teamed up with Benedict Arnold, (laughs) combined together. I mean, imagine an invading force. I mean, some of you remember September 11th. You remember the feeling of what it was like to be attacked and the gut-wrenching feeling of what it would be like for our lands to be taken over by an invading force, Imagine what that would be like. And imagine as as we're rallying ourselves to figure out what to do, there are citizens who are taking resources, taking money, and giving it to that invading force. They themselves are becoming wealthy at the expense of, of of his own fellow citizens. Matthew was a tax collector. Perhaps what was even worse about Matthew and his condition is that we're told that he's also known by another name. I listed some verses at the bottom of your your outline on the sermon notes page, but there's a passage in Luke 5 and in Mark 2 that describes this the same event, but they don't use the name Matthew. They use the name Levi. Levi was a unique name levi would have reminded people of the tribe of levi and do you remember what the tribe of levi was was told to do by the lord they were told not just to collect tithe taxes but to distribute them in in a wise and godly way They, they were leaders they were spiritual leaders The priestly line came from the the tribe of Levi, Levi. The Levites who were to guard and protect the temple. This wasn't just a tax collector. This was a spiritual leader who had abandoned everything that God had instructed the Levites to do and was turning to the pagan nation of Rome to give the taxes to them. You see, Matthew was a sinner. And if you can understand in that mindset what it was like to be an ancient Israelite, you have some empathy of what it was like to be a Pharisee and to be an Israelite, that, that, that when they saw Matthew, he wasn't just a man sitting by a booth. The rabbinical tradition, they would say, he's as bad as a Murderer. Because the murderers came and destroyed our people. He's supporting them. He's worse, perhaps. You know, tax collectors in that day and age, they they weren't allowed to give public testimony in court. They weren't trustworthy. You weren't allowed to. I mean, imagine feeling that as Matthew. I'm not allowed to. I I witnessed a crime, but you don't want to hear it. (laughs) They weren't allowed in the synagogues to worship. The doors would be shut. Matthew wouldn't be allowed to come in to worship like we're allowed to worship now. Matthew was a sinner. He wants us to understand that Jesus, he came to sinners. He was sent, his mission was sent to sinners. Look with me in the passage, beginning in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. The beginning, Matthew records this soul story of his life, of of what he wants us to know about who he is. It begins with Jesus passing on from there. What did he pass on from? If you go back in the previous text, Jesus has just encountered a paralytic. And that paralytic was brought to Jesus by his friends. Jesus not only healed him, but before he healed him, he said something. Your sins are forgiven. And it's as if Matthew's saying, Jesus forgave the paralytic, he healed him. The man who Matthew had passed by day after day, who was lying on a mat, was now running through the streets, picking up his mat, And it's like Jesus has his eyes set out looking for a sinner. (laughs) Because he was looking, he saw, and he approached Matthew. Do you hear how, how Matthew describes Jesus? He wasn't afraid of being near sinners, he was looking for him. He was on a mission to find a sinner, to find Matthew, to find this Levi. Jesus calls sinners and as he does this we see that as he approaches Matthew defined by his tax booth he simply says two words follow me and Matthew rose and followed him. Two words changed Matthew's life forever. This encounter with Jesus, but it wasn't simply two simple words. People say two words to us on the street, in our offices, in our homes all the time. But these two words were transformative because of the one who said them. Because the king, who Matthew's telling this story, has already healed the sick, who thousands are flocking to who's shown power over demons is now coming to the tax booth He's the one who one who says follow me he's the one who confronts Matthew and his sin his public sin and Matthew immediately responds he, he doesn't delay he doesn't worry about what it's going to mean to leave his tax booth you know when jesus called peter and james and john they were fishermen it says they left their their boats and their nets and they followed jesus if they wanted to go back they could have picked up nets and boats and could have fished again matthew couldn't have done that for matthew this was a complete abandonment of his work of his livelihood Of the sins that he had been living out in the face of of all of, of Israel. Matthew was walking away. Immediately he picked up, he rose, he followed. Jesus' command to follow me is a command he gives to all sinners. Jesus loves sinners. He comes to confront us and our sin. And he tells us to abandon that which we hold on to, that is sin, that clings so easily, and the shame that we hold on to. See, we live in a world where sin causes shame and we want to hide ourselves. We want to bury our sins down, suppress it so that no one can see. Much like in the Garden of Eden, let me hide my sin Let me pretend that I look okay and pleasing in the outside. Jesus knows our hearts. He's calling us to turn our sins over to him, to leave them behind, to follow. Matthew follows and he leaves all but two things in fact. If you actually pay attention to the story, there's one and then there's one in, in, in the next chapter. Uh, the first thing that he, he does not leave, he doesn't leave his contacts. Those who are also tax collectors and sinners, those who know they need a savior as well. Uh, look with me in verse 10. As Jesus reclined at table in Matthew's house, we find that out from Luke and Mark's gospel, behold, many tax collectors and sinners, those who were known and defined by the community as big sins, sins that were unacceptable in the sight of the world around them. Jesus gathers them together and he reclines with them. He eats with them. He fellowships with them. You know, in our day and age, when we eat and have food with people, we don't think too much of it, who we're eating with, but in the ancient world in particular, to sit and recline at a table was an act of intimacy, a friendship, a fellowship. Jesus is demonstrating that he wants to be with these sinners And and look at how he describes his love for them. It's it's simple, but it's profound. Uh, He doesn't have this program figured out for evangelism to these people. Uh, He doesn't have the right four laws to be able to communicate. He's simply with them. His presence is enough. It's drawing tax collectors and sinners to leave their world and to be with Jesus. Jesus is with those whom he loves. Jesus is calling us to be with those who are sinners. To be present and to love those who struggle to understand the grace of God. He's calling us out to be like Matthew who is now not an empty cup. But in that word of follow me, he is now overflowing into the lives of his friends, his associates. All those who would listen to him have come. Jesus has brought them all, or Matthew has brought them all to Jesus. The second thing Matthew keeps is his story. Most of us don't want to be defined by our sins. We don't want to think about what we've once done. That's in the past, but not Matthew. Matthew. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to uh, chapter 10. Chapter 10, and, and you'll notice the first four verses are a list of apostles. But you'll notice in verse 3, Matthew lists himself two places Matthew talks about himself. Matthew 9 and Matthew 10. And if you look through that list of names of those who are apostles, you'll find descriptions that Matthew gives. But none of those descriptions are what they were professionally except for him. Matthew defines himself as the tax collector. What's Matthew doing here? He's not reveling in his sin. He's not boasting about it, but he's boasting about his Savior. He's saying, look who I once was, and look who I will forever be. And he claims that name of Matthew, not Levi, because while Levi referred to the Levitical tribes, do you know what Matthew means? Gift from God. That's what Jesus has done to Matthew. He's transformed him to embrace an identity that says, because of Jesus, I have become a gift. I'm the tax collector who is a gift. (laughs) It wasn't me. It was my big sin that exposed my life. But it was an even bigger Savior who redefined who I was to belong to him Jesus loves sinners he comes to us he tells us to follow him Matthew holds on to his contacts his relationships and he holds on to his story in light of the love of Jesus he becomes a fountain of living water we see that this the story continues as Jesus encounters not just Matthew and the tax collectors, but is now encountering, encountering the Pharisees as they observe all of this. The Pharisees see Jesus in some ways guilt by association. We would think, and, and as we've already discussed, as I've already described. You know, he's a big sinner. Surely, this rabbi wouldn't associate with a big sinner. Or big sinners, the tax collectors and sinners. It would have been okay if he was teaching them or rebuking them. But to eat with them? To love them? To show mercy to them? And they go about this in a very interesting way. Look, at, look in verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, they didn't go to Jesus, uh, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That's an important question thing to notice. There will be a time when the Pharisees go directly to Jesus, but not yet. Right now, they are good rule followers. In the ancient world, you don't just go up to a rabbi and tell them what they did wrong. You work your way to the rabbi by going through the disciples. They're following a rule here, and their lives are defined by rules. Uh, Pharisees were defined by all sorts of rules that made them seem like they were really good people. They weren't big sinners. They were people who looked very wonderfully righteous on the outside very healthy and by even their actions here they're looking like healthy good righteous people when we hear about that or when we examine that we 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 think about those rules in our own lives sometimes there's a danger in our own hearts Uh, feelings that somehow we have to fix ourselves up to come to God. Uh, We have to look right on the outside uh, in order to to follow Jesus. We have to be careful that that Jesus actually comes to call you as you are. He goes to the tax booth. He doesn't wait for you to leave the tax booth before calling you. He approaches, his love preempts our response. He wants us to follow him, but he wants us to be defined by his love, not by the rules with which we follow that seem to make us right with God or righteous. And this is important for us because neurologically, I had a class one time with a brain neurologist, a professor who said, your brain is the most fluid organ in your body. If you want to become a certain way, you can choose to become a certain way. You want to become more compassionate, your brain will change, your identity will change if you act in compassionate ways. So if you want to become more compassionate and you're in the drive-thru, pay for someone else's meal, the car behind you. You want to be more compassionate, open the door for someone. Write a card. All these practices form your brain. But one thing you cannot be is more missional in the world. You You cannot focus your mind and brain enough to change your identity. You have to be transformed to be on mission and part of the kingdom of God. You see, you can't fix your sin on your own. You can't choose to be more missional in the world without knowing who Jesus is and allowing him to pour his life into yours. It's not about the sacrifices that you go through to become more like Jesus. It's about trusting and looking to him that he would pour himself out for you. Acknowledging our sin, living in light of of who he is, walking and turning away from it. This is a hard thing to do. It's it's impossible to do, in fact. Uh, What what Jesus actually instructs, what he says when he hears this, is, is he tells the disciples clues, or the Pharisees clues, as to how they might actually understand what he's doing. Because they can't understand his mercy. They can't understand why he's loving these sinners. So, what does he say? Look with me in verses 12 and 13. Listen to what Jesus says in response. When he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn. That's something the Pharisees would say to their students. Jesus tells it to the Pharisees go and learn what this means. I desire mercy. And not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus gives three statements here. And all three of them are saying the same thing. He's communicating the same principle that he himself is the physician. He is the one to whom sick people go to find health and life. He is the one that sinners go to to find righteousness. He is the one who shows mercy. He's referencing a passage in Hosea which we heard again. If you have your Bibles and you have those open, turn to Hosea 6. This is a passage about the faithlessness of God's people and the faithfulness of the Lord. And we could spend all morning in this passage. I'd encourage you to read it later, but just to highlight a few things in this in this very important context for us. Uh, verse 3, the Lord will restore his people. He actually, he sends showers of rain. His love is like a shower of rain being poured out on his people. But his people, they don't listen. They don't love him. They don't respond in his mercy. How do they respond? They respond like the morning dew. One moment it's there, the next morning The next moment, it's gone. It dries up quickly. It looks good on the outside. It initially looks like it's responding, but it it isn't remaining. Their love is torn to other places. In verse 5, the Lord actually sends prophets. He actually sends judgment. And, And what Ken read this morning, talking about he sends light, that word is actually, it's like sunlight. What does sunlight do to morning dew? It dries it up. What happens when the Lord dries up our hearts to draw our taste to water, to desire water? When we feel dried up, when we're unsure how to participate in the mission of God and and we're not sure how to walk in the kingdom, if we feel dried out, it's as if the Lord is encouraging us to turn to him To know his faithful love because all of Hosea 6 culminates in verse 6. Which is what Jesus quotes. For I desire steadfast love or mercy and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Now Jesus doesn't quote this. He's using the same word. He uses mercy in, in, uh, in, in Matthew's gospel. He uses steadfast love here in Hosea. They're the same word. The word hesed. The word of covenantal faithfulness, the binding of God to his people, that he will love his people no matter what they do, no matter where they go. If they turn their hearts to the Lord, he will provide the sacrifice. And what has Jesus come to do? It's not about the Pharisees' sacrifices before God that makes them pleasing in the sight of the Lord. It's the Lord Jesus who gives himself as the sacrifice, the sacrifice for sinners. See, none of us want to acknowledge our sins. None of us want to be seen as sinners. We want to appear justified. We want to think that our sins aren't big sins. And often our hearts become walled off as we seek to justify ourselves and we seek to see others as having big sins. and We minimize our sin before God and others. And this is what the Pharisees had done. Jesus, he doesn't actually call them righteous. He doesn't actually say they're healthy. He's actually calling them to go out and learn that they're actually sick. That their hearts are, have a bigger sin than Matthew's because they're unable to realize the mercy and the steadfast love of the Lord that fills our cups when we're dry, when we're desperate because it's only the steadfast love of the Lord that causes us to overflow to others. If you want to be like Jesus If you want to love like Jesus, understand his mercy. Understand his steadfast love and take that love to your family, to your neighbors, to the stranger who passes through our gates. Thomas Chalmers was a very well-known Scottish Presbyterian. Uh, He was a pastor. He actually was a brilliant man. He went uh, to the University of St. Andrew at the age of 11. He was licensed to preach at 19, uh, but he turned away to scientific endeavors for a while. Eventually believed he was called to be a minister, became a pastor. Eventually became a Christian while being a minister and a pastor. And during the course of his converted ministry led thousands to the Lord. He actually planted over 200 churches. That's a goal for our m a committee, 200 churches during the course of his life. It was said of Dr. Chalmers that all the world is wild about him in his era. And there's a story that's told in which a visitor came and heard Dr. Chalmers for the first time And one of his ardent admirers after he had shared his preaching came running up to this visitor. What did you think of Dr. Chalmers? The man replied, think of him. Why he has made me think so much about Jesus. I had no time to think about him. You see, that's the story Matthew's telling us. That's the story that Matthew wants us to remember. That who he was And who he will forever be is defined by the God who sought him out and loved him when he was a sinner. May that be our story. And may that be the life that we live to the world around us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do struggle to understand your mercy. Lord, it looks good to have sacrifices that we might look well and pleasing to our neighbors, even to our spouses, and what we think you might like before you. But Father, help us to learn that you desire mercy, that you call us to follow you. We leave our sins behind us. Would you make us recipients of your mercy in such a way that we would overflow in our lives and in our community and around the world that the world would know of your love of your saving grace help us help us even as we worship you now we pray it in Jesus name amen